Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords, and this is the podcast segment of the show that's not broadcast on station K-Italy. Our guest for this 437th show is Dr. Seth Moran, Principal USGA Seismologist at the Cascades Volcano Observatory. And we're going to be talking about Mount St. Helen is not where it's supposed to be. Our history buffs are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. And Ed, you start us off. Thanks, Jay. Seth, I remember uh, when this happened, and I, uh, I recall that the amount of material that was displaced, if you will, by the explosion in Mount St. Helens was like one and a half cubic miles. Um, that's a lot of, that, that's kind of hard to get one's head around. Um, so on the scale of these types of eruptions, um, where does this fit? And then another detail that I probably have lost to time, um, I don't recall any mention of a lava flow. Hmm. Um, so can you kind of explain why that didn't happen? Sure. Um, so just starting with the first part of it, the, the eruption had, um, had two parts to it. And it was started by the landslide. And the landslide was one of the largest in recorded history. It was, I'm going to be metric, 2.3 cubic kilometers. And I can't convert that to square miles or cubic miles. Um, but huge. And it was, um, you know, roughly speaking, maybe about a quarter of the volcano. And, uh, and then also there was the massive explosion and the then eruption that followed that put volumes of ash into the stratosphere. And that was around, um, roughly speaking, about uh, a billion cubic uh, or one cubic kilometer. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, you, so you can just see from those numbers that the landslide was about, you know, two times the size of all the stuff that came out afterwards. Uh, so in terms of eruptive products, the landslide was a big one. Um, and uh, for, for um, historic perspective, um, there's, there's a, a magnitude scale of sorts, if you will, that volcanologists have used to relatively um, describe the sizes of eruptions in different places. And it's called the Volcano Explosivity Index, or VEI. And uh, Mount St. Helens was given a five on that. And uh, largest eruptions that have happened that people have been able to come up with sort of volumes for have been VEI-8s. And the largest eruption in the 20th century was a VEI-6 up at Mount Katmai in the U.S., the largest eruption in the U.S. Um, and so, you know, a cubic kilometer is a lot. But um, uh, the eruption I mentioned before uh, with uh, Glacier Peak that happened, uh, Glacier Peak is a volcano in Washington about 13,500 years ago. It produced an eruption that was roughly five cubic kilometers, so about five times the size of Mount St. Helens. Um, so it's, you know, it was, it was big enough, but it was not, you know, by any stretch, the largest eruption that's happened even in the 20th century um, and as well as in the Cascade Range. And I've lost the second part of your question. I apologize. Um, why we didn't see lava? Ah, right. Um, so in the buildup to May 18, 
there was what's called a cryptodome, a, a lava dome, a lava that was basically intruding into the volcano and making it bulge, but wasn't making it to the surface. And so there was you know, lava that was kind of in, uh, inside the volcano, and that was cooling and crystallizing. And then when the volcano blew, most of that became part of the, uh, the ash deposit, the pumice. You see bits and pieces of it uh, all around the landscape. And so one short answer is that uh, there was no lava with the 19, May, May 18 eruption because it was blown up, but there you know, was, was sort of there already. Um, there was lava that came out in the uh, uh, subsequent eruptions in uh, June, July, August in, in the 1980s, and then and onwards into 386. And there was a lava dome that was built over the course of about mm, 15 eruptions. And um, the, the, uh, between 1980 and 1986, and that lava dome um, approached about 100 million cubic meters. So, you know, it's a, a cubic kilometer is um, uh, uh, um, a billion cubic meters. So this was about a tenth the size of, of the sort of the, the volume that came out of, um, on May 18, 1980. Um, and did not, you know, it's gone a small ways towards filling up and sort of replacing the large volume that was lost in the landslide. Um, but that was not a flow in the sense that we, you know, typically think of them with Kilauea and, uh, and La Palma now, that, you know, nice and fluid. It was instead, a, it's called a dome because it's what it looks like. It's this, this you know, sort of pile that forms a, a, a spherical or hemispherical shape. Another thing that you could call it is a cow pie. It kind of looks like a cow pie. Um, and, uh, and at night, there were some cool pictures people were taking because there are cracks on the surface, and you can see this red glowing cracks coming out of it. So in that sense, you, know, you knew that there was lava, but it was not moving very fast. Can I get a look at this? If I walk up, am I allowed to do that? Ah, so right now, I mean, now it's all done. There's no, no, uh, no erupting lava. There's no red rock up there. But there's a spe spectacular vantage point that you can drive to. The Forest Service created a visitor center called the Johnson Ridge Observatory that's about five miles as the bird flies from the vent. And it looks straight in from the landslide scar that was uh, left behind by 1980. So you just look straight into the crater. You can see the domes. You can see the crater that was left behind. You can see the landslide deposits. You can see the deposits from the uh, the, the um, pyroclastic flows and the blasts that followed the, uh, the landslide. It is spectacular. On a clear day, it is one of, I think, the, the top ten things to see in the world. And, uh, and can, you can drive to it very easily. Okay, Rick. Seth, uh, we, uh, in the broadcast portion we talked about the uh, Juan de Fuca uh, plate. Uh, I think it's a microplate uh, that's uh, creating what's called the Cascadia quake zone. Where where did Juan de Fuca plate come from? Has, has your team identified what it is chemically as opposed to North American pl uh, plate chemical signature? Well, it's, it's an oceanic plate, so it's um, dominantly basaltic and uh, and continental plates. This, this, this is plate tectonic theory. This is not our, our team. Um, sure. This has been been recognized back to the 60s and 50s and, be, and earlier than that. But um, it's, a, it's a difference in chemical composition. And so plates that are underneath 
oceans or that form the ocean floor uh, tend to be bas- have basalts as their dominant composition. And uh, continental plates, which tend to have the land masses that are above water, are more sort of granitic in, 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 in composition. And it's less dense, believe it or not, less dense. And so when the two plates collide, when there's an oceanic plate that collides with a continental plate, the oceanic plate basically loses the battle. It's too de- it's denser, and so it sinks underneath the continental plate. The continental plate rises over the, the oceanic plate. And, uh, and so that, that's the sort of general understanding. And, you know, if we'd been around here 10, 20 million years ago, the Juan de Fuca plate would be much larger. Uh, a lot of it is underneath North America now, and there's just this little sliver that's left. And in another couple million years, that sliver will be gone. And uh, and then we'll have a different kind of uh, tectonic situation here in the West Coast. Okay, um, Seth. So you talked a little bit about uh, seismologists being the sort of force fighters or or the park rangers who are keeping an eye on things. Talk to us a little bit about how that process works. How do you track um, the uh, the seismic activity that's going on in the Cascades? How do you uh, start to build predictive models of when uh, eruptions may or may not take place? Um, kind of walk us through the, the process uh, as it currently exists. Sure. Yeah. Well, first off, I should say it's not just seismologists that are the firefighters. It's the whole observatory team. And uh, eruptions involve a lot of different kinds of things. And so you know, geologists need to be around and uh, seismologists and geochemists and people who study gas. And there's also a lot of um, interactions with partner agencies that are you know, super important. And so um, kind of like a fire department, it, we need to have a relationship with the community that we're working in and we need to have kind of established protocols and we need to have the instrumentation that is needed to respond. And so in our case, instead of fire trucks, what we have uh, in terms of the initial response is um, networks of instruments that are out there recording and transmitting data 24-7. And that's seismometers. That's traditionally been the workhorse of observatories. But with uh, the advent of, of or the advancement of technology, there's more things that we can uh, run out at volcanoes um, with things like GPS instruments now. That's a, that's a big one um, that's been around for mm, a couple decades, but with real-time monitoring, really the last decade plus, uh, where we've got GPS uh, receivers that are just like the ones that all of us have in our cell phones, except they are in one place. They're not moving. Their job is to stay there. And uh, there's, a, there's a receiver that's receiving the GPS signals from satellites and pretty much figuring out where it's located about every minute. And, uh, and over the course of a day, you get a super accurate lo- uh, location for that that allows you to tell if that site has moved by um, a couple of millimeters, like, you know, it's a, maybe a, a little bit of a fingernail. Um, and, uh, and so that allows us to detect really, really, really subtle ground deformations that um, w- will be the, you know, one of the first things that happens when magma starts moving upwards. It'll displace the ground surface. And at first, it's really going to be really hard to see that with any with eyes. It won't be ground cracks. The first thing that'll happen is just these little subtle movements, and so that's part of the thing. Also, gas monitoring is hugely important as well, as um, gas compositions coming out of volcanoes change as magma moves towards the surface. 
And so th- those are all things that we kind of uh, rely upon and monitor 24-7 to tell us whether we should be concerned about a particular volcano. And so one of the goals in blue sky time when we don't have an eruption is to improve monitoring networks um, at, at various volcanoes. Um, another thing that we work on that isn't necessarily something people think of with volcanologists is we're out in the communities establishing connections with the people who would be impacted by the next eruption so that when that eruption happens, we're not exchanging business cards. And there's a, a, a saying in the um, emergency response community that uh, crisis is the wrong time to be exchanging business cards. And so we, we're trying really hard to you know, work with that and also to um, have uh, people who, just the, the general public, um, be as volcano literate as uh, they can be, as they're interested in being. And so that means providing products that explain some of these weird words that we use, like strombolian. What's strombolian? That's what's happening at La Palma. Uh, strombolian is a kind of eruption that comes, it's, uh, there's a volcano in Italy called stromboli, and so it's an Italian word that describes a certain kind of eruption. And so our job is to explain what that is and make sure we don't use too much jargon, but to sort of have people understand uh, what, what can happen what, and, 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 and whatnot. But then there's also this you know, reality that volcanoes can wake up very fast. And so we have to have some kind of uh, architecture inside the observatory that's ready. And so there's a, like, as one example at, at the Cascades Volcano Observatory, there's a couple of seismologists. And whenever one of us is going on vacation, we tell the other one or tell the other so that we make sure that there's somebody around, there's coverage. And, um, and so it's, uh, it, we do take that part of it seriously. And it's not just about the possibility of an eruption happening, but like just the other day, there was a small clustering of earthquakes at Mount Hood. And, uh, and so that required some attention at, of course, at night. And uh, so um, there, there, there is that kind of response capability that we also take very seriously. Right. Well, and obviously that's also why you're on shows like ROI. Yes. Um, We would like to thank our guest for this 437th show, Dr. Seth Moran, Principal USGA Seismologist at the Cascades Volcano Observatory. We've been talking about Mount St. Helen is not where it's supposed to be. The history bus for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. You can listen to ROI as it's being broadcast on Friday nights on KLA HD2 88.5 FM and 106.1 FM in the Quad City region at 9.30 p.m. You can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com. Put K-A-L-A-H-D-2 in the search box and look for ROI. Many of our previously recorded shows can be heard at SoundCloud.com. Just put K-A-L-A Radio in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all of your favorite streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. ROI is recorded at station K-A-L-A, St. Ambrose University.